got RSI, reactive strength index, which is your flight time divided by your contact time or your uh, jump height divided by your contact time or con uh, reactive strength index modified, which is just contraction time instead of contact time. Um, like th they can be improved dramatically in like 20 seconds of coaching. A battery of like jumping tests I might use and, and I might apply that in like an a la carte fashion based on who I have, what sport I'm dealing with. Um, but I mean, your basic one, your basic one is just a counter movement jump. From there, um, I can give you a height for uh, depth jumps and uh, drop jumps almost immediately. Basically, it's just 10% higher than your um, than your best counter movement jump height. And then you can go, okay, if I jump 40 centimeters um, and a counter movement jump, the optimal height for you to start doing depth jumps will be at 45 cents. Welcome back to the RPE Podcast, a show where we talk about all things coaching, training, rehabilitation, and sports medicine. Our aim is to give you the knowledge and understanding of important strength and conditioning and rehab principles so that you can provide a simple and evidence-based program to whoever you are working with. You were just hearing from none other than Joseph Coyne. Joseph is a very experienced strength and conditioning coach who has a lot of experience across a large range of sports and was a perfect guest to take us through today's topic, plyometrics. We begin with a bit on Joseph's journey through his career and how he's ended up to where he is today. To start our plyometrics chat, we begin by defining what plyometrics are. Plyometrics are movements that utilize the stretch shortening cycle, that is the ability of a tendon to store elastic energy and then transfer it into force production. We discuss using the principle of specificity to ensure that our athletes or clients are getting the loading that they may not already be getting from participation in their sport or filling in the gaps as it is referred to. We then discuss ways to change demands of tasks as well as how to assess plyometric ability and how this guides our programming. In this section, we discuss the eccentric utilization ratio, which is essentially an idea for determining how much someone is able to use or depend on the stretch shortening cycle when jumping. Throughout our talk with Joseph, we also explore some other key topics such as the importance of variability, training the contralateral limb, jumping technique, discrepancies in training upper limb and lower limb plyometrics, and some of the challenges that may arise when prescribing plyometrics in your program. We love this chat and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the RPE podcast. Uh, my name's Connor and today I'm joined by Steve. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Not doing bad on holidays at the moment, which is good. Awesome, awesome stuff. And uh, Steve and I today are joined by a very special guest. We're very lucky and honoured to be joined by this guest, and that is Joseph Coyne. So Joseph has a huge depth and range of knowledge in the strength and conditioning space, and we're super excited to have him on. How you going, Joseph? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the uh, kind words and, and having me on. No, thank you very much. Um, so just for those listeners who aren't aware of you and your work, um, would you like to give us a bit of background about yourself, how you got into S&C, and then how you've progressed throughout your journey and your career to where you are today? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so the, the journey probably started when I was getting chased around by, uh, when I was nine years old, by two big Maori girls in like Polygabay, New Zealand, 
and I couldn't outrun them and I wasn't stronger than them and they had hockey sticks and they bit the uh, bit the crap out of me. And so I was like, since then, that probably sparked my, uh, sparked my sort of curiosity around getting sort of stronger and faster and, and uh, being able to run, that type of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, uh, after, I guess after university, from New Zealand originally, um, uh, and after university, I came to Australia. I did like a Bachelor of Physical Education, which was actually a sports science degree. You couldn't go and teach with it. Um, it was just the, uh, the uh, I guess it's showing my age, but um, New Zealand didn't have any sports science degrees on offer at the time. Um, I think in my second year, there might, one might have popped up at the Waikato University or something like that. Uh, and so, yeah, I did this four-year undergrad um, of, uh, of PE. And then... Um, there's like a, I stayed for another year to like a teaching diploma because like I said, that couldn't, that couldn't, you couldn't go teaching with that degree. So just in case I wanted to be a PE teacher um, at some stage, came, came over to Australia, was playing um, sort of park footy in Australia uh, in Tweed Heads. And then, um, yeah, started uh, started working out of, out of a gym, doing some personal training, um, got involved with uh, ACE at the time, which is now ESA. Exercise and Sports Science Australia, became an exercise physiologist, or got accredited as one. Um, and in the meantime, I've been sort of coaching athletes privately, strength conditioning coaching athletes privately on the Gold Coast. Gold Coast is like triathletes, surfers, swimmers, uh, predominantly um, some rugby league players as well, guys I actually played with. Um, and like it made the sort of uh, uh, professional ranks, NRL ranks, um, started coming to see me, that type of thing. Um, and then, yeah, look, I probably, oh, long, long convoluted stories, but ended up uh, in 2014, I'd, I'd sort of worked, done consulting gigs or um, uh, sort of contract gigs with, with groups like Queensland Academy of Sport, done a bit of consulting with Sydney Roosters, stuff like that. And 2014, I actually got uh, a role with the Chinese Olympic Committee. It was contract to a company called Exos, or actually athlete, Athletes Performance at the time, which is a uh, company in the United States, um, and if, if anybody listening wants to uh, wants to look into them, they're like awesome, awesome uh, company. Um, do some really good professional development work, but they had a contract. They they had contracts with like the German World Cup soccer winning uh, World Cup winning soccer team um, or football team. Uh, that I believe that was 2013. Um, Argentinian rugby, um, Chinese Olympics 2012, um, uh, and a few other different like international sporting uh, sporting things. So they had a department that just went around and got these big contracts internationally. And I got the nod for a role that they had available over with the Chinese Olympic Committee, where just like they supported 2012 Olympics, now they're supporting 2016 Olympics. I thought it was pretty cool going to China, um, a real like institutionalized uh, sporting system, kind of like like Soviet bloc type type thing. Um, every system's fully professional. It's not like uh, the poor sods here in Australia that might have to go to training and then uh, work like poor nine to five as a, as a bricklayer or something like that and then head back to training in the evening, um, trying to get there, uh, trying to go to the Olympics and things like that. So that, that I, I did that. Um, and one of the sort of, uh, ways I got into that was a knowledge of, and I'd worked with sprinters and um, actually beach sprinters as well from the Gold Coast. There's a lot of beach sprinters I worked with. I had a little bit of a background in, in track and field. And um, 
after that contract actually finished, uh, I got uh, offered a role with Chinese Athletics Association, with Track and Field Federation, basically, in their jump and sprint section as a physical preparation coach. So I did that. That was about uh, just under two years. Um, in that time, I started a PhD, came back home, worked pretty much full-time on PhD, a little bit of part-time work. And then, uh, so that was after World Champs in 2017, so London, um, yeah, came home, worked for about eight months, and then I got the uh, I got asked to um, head up. The UFC was setting up a performance institute, Ultimate Fighting Championship. They got a performance institute in Las Vegas. Um, they're setting one up in Shanghai in, in an effort to get into uh, the Chinese market. Uh, they needed somebody to sort of head up the program for the first few years, and uh, I was lucky enough to get that that role and, and went over to uh, to that do that sort of early 2019 um, heavily COVID affected but uh, that ended uh, in 2021 and then since then I've come back to Australia and uh, working at a at a university and um, and actually a local high school at the moment which is uh, which has been pretty rewarding awesome it sounds like you've done a bit of everything every sport every type of career pathway that you can kind of get out of this is there anything else you kind of are moving towards or want to go into that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I don't know. To, to be honest, I, I grew up playing um, playing like rugby union and rugby league, and that would probably be the last thing to sort of pick up my box. I've actually the other thing would maybe be an American sport. I've actually um, been about like a, a nose whisker away from uh, from uh, going to the states and in a sort of a, a role with a. Uh, baseball team like a major league baseball team but they didn't didn't eventuate for um, for a couple of different reasons but um yeah no th- th- those would probably be the two things that i'd be uh, um i'll take off take off the bucket list but um yeah i've been really lucky with what i've done so far and uh, if those things don't happen i wouldn't be too worried either I'm pretty pretty content and happy where i am at the moment awesome Mate, so that's awesome and it's gonna be cool like i was just thinking with listing off those sports because we're going to be talking plyometrics today it's really cool that you're going to have like you know there's going to be different plyometric abilities that you would have had to have trained and rehab from like say beach sprinting and sprinting and and like and then upper body stuff with the ufc so it'll be really good uh yeah cool 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 yeah, one of the, I guess, the good parts of the uh, Chinese Olympic Committee role was that, that was uh, you're like at an institute, so you worked across different sports. So I worked across sports like basketball and volleyball, um, ping pong, ping pong, like very important sport in China. Um, and there's a lot of uh, parliamentary activity in that as well, like a massive amount and train it a lot at the high level. So um, that was pretty interesting as well. Far out. That's awesome. So if we're going to chat plyometrics, um, yeah, if we just start with the basics. So just for those who are new to plyometrics, what is a plyometric exercise? What differentiates it from other movements and kind of what components make up a plyometric activity? Yeah, so it's, I guess it's a bit of a, I wouldn't say nebulous term, but probably a term that's used interchangeably just with jumping, right? Um, and what, what a parliamentary, it's, it just involves stretch shortening cycle. So there's um, this, this uh, mechanism in the body where um, you can basically use elastic energy. Uh, and that's the stretch shortening cycle. Now there's slow stretch shortening cycle activities and fast stretch shortening cycle activities. 
a guy called Smith Blider, he uh, sort of recommended that anything below a time domain below 250 milliseconds or a quarter of a second, if it was below that or faster than that, it would be considered a fast shit shortening cycle activity and um, would fit in what we would normally consider a pilometric. Anything above that slow shit shortening cycle activity, uh, you could say isn't technically a pilometric. Um, but even slow stretch shortening cycle activity still involves stretch shortening cycle. Um, and so there's the component. So you, you can call them fast stretch shortening cycle activities. Anything below that sort of 250 millisecond, some people have recommended, I think Comey recommended like 300 milliseconds. So it's, uh, it's in and around that time frame, 250, um, 300 milliseconds below that in terms of how long does it take for you to, um, for you to uh, absorb and produce force, essentially, for there to be any centric, um, sometimes very short isometric and concentric action. Awesome. And it sounds as if, yeah, there's such a broad scope of what a plyometric is that there, there must be a continuum all the way from really slow plyometrics to really fast plyometrics. Um, yeah. Is there much difference in kind of what happens physically in a slow plyometric versus a fast plyometric? Like the demands oh, yeah, yeah. of I mean, the topic? Yeah, for, for sure, for sure, right? It's like a, uh, it's like um, just the rate that you need to be able to absorb and, and produce force is, is much greater. Um, and the forces will, will go up exponentially um, in different muscle groups pending that, that contraction speed. Um, and so and what I mentioned before, it's, it's somewhat nebulous, is because people consider, say, a counter-movement jump a plyometric uh, activity, but most times people will be spending sort of 350 to 500, maybe even 600 milliseconds, depending on how deep they go and how slow they are in their counter-movement to, to um, uh, go through eccentric and contract, concentric contraction. So that your continuum ranges all the way from, say, sprinting, um, uh, and maybe even probably even faster than that would be throwing a kick or a punch in martial arts, but sprinting, right? Contact times uh, 80 to 100 milliseconds on average. 80 would be really fast. 90 is about the average in a, like a world championship final. Um, all the way to like your throws and, and that type of thing where you're, where you're talking similar to a counter movement jump. Contact times might be around 350 milliseconds. Um, all the way to something like traditional strength training where Contact times obviously might be, uh, if you think of a powerlifting squat, six seconds, you know what I mean, by the time they go down and then back up and uh, struggle away with something. So, or struggle away with the load on their back. So, you've got this range. They're all eccentric, concentric contractions. Um, they all involve some type of stretch shortening cycle activity. Some it's much faster, some it's uh, much slower. Do you find that with your athletes, depending on, I guess, what uh, end of the spectrum their sport exists in more? Um, you get more bang for buck at one end of the spectrum specificity wise in, in kind of doing your plyometrics, um, kind of doing more of their volume in that specific range, or do you need to kind of do more in the lower ranges and building them up or a bit of a mix through the season? Like how do you go about your, um, your programming for someone, say if they're in those really quick things like sprinting and that um, type of really quick, fast plyometric range that yeah, it's a good question, um, and it's definitely uh, like dictated by your philosophy, right? But um, essentially, you've got this like force velocity curve right at one end. Might be like your powerlifting activities, and like going to Olympic weightlifting, and then throws, and then jumping, and sprinting, just as a really basic overview. And so, 
um, if uh, just as, as, a, as a general rule of thumb, you might go, okay, what are they getting in their sports? So if it's track and field athlete, they might be getting sprinting and jumping. Um, okay, let's fill in the blanks with the throws and the Olympic ballistic style work with the Olympic weightlifting and the, uh, and the strength training. Let's fill in the gaps on the uh, force velocity curve. Then you'll get to a point where that probably won't keep uh, um, driving adaptations that actually improve the sporting performance. And then after that, you need to go in and do things in and around those time domains that uh, that, that athlete is, is working in in their actual sport. So it might be um, sprinting uh, faster than normal, sprinting um, but slower than normal, um, sprinting with more body weight than normal, sprinting with less body weight than normal. So those type of things will, will all uh, change um, and, uh, and be really specific to the activity you're working with. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, that, that's generally my philosophy is when we start, I fill in the gaps. Once they um, have a, a good base, then we, then we uh, get a bit more particular in and around uh, the actual segment of the force velocity curve that, uh, that we really want to focus on to improve performance. Then of course, when you're starting with athletes, you, um, there's different types of jumps or plyometric activities and, and low amplitude and, and high amplitude. Like for instance, skipping would be a would be a really low amplitude activity that is is plyometric, you know what I mean? And then there's higher and higher amplitude uh, activities, um, repeated jumps, depth jumps, drop jumps, all those types of things. Interestingly, talking about skipping, actually, I was just gonna go um, into something there where um, I know there was recently, I think it was last year, there was a, um, a study come out where they did like five minutes of skipping. Um, I think they're in 5K runners or something like that. And mm. I was just wondering then, like almost theorizing, maybe it was like, they, so they improved their 5K times um, with just kind of adding skipping versus just kind of doing the running. And I was wondering whether or not it is, as you were saying, it's kind of almost with those particular runners, it filled in that gap of, you know, it was a close enough, um, ground contact time to what they're doing when they're running that 5k but you know they could probably get fill in maybe I don't know would it be a touch slower or a touch quicker the ground contact time's there but it must be it must be similar enough anyway that it's really kind of working on that the, their weaknesses that they were needing to improve there in their kind of calf and um, soleus kind of complex to and Achilles tendon to kind of drive the elastic recoil that they need for sure, for sure. I mean, and that would all depend on what caliber of a 5K runner, what, what the mechanism is for performance improvement would depend on what caliber of 5K runner they are. Um, if they're running around 20 minutes versus if they're running around 15 minutes, uh, that's a big difference in contact times um, and whether skipping is going to be uh, giving them the same stimulus or a faster stimulus, uh, you know what I mean? Um, and if they're running around 25 minutes, it, like skipping will definitely be a faster stimulus than what, they, what they're used to. Um, it, uh, yeah, all sorts of things, calf musculature, um, ankle stiffness, all that type of thing. You, you'd think that you'd hope that it would improve, uh, improve contact times and not, not, um, like not just sprinting, but also middle distance, long distance runners. Um, and uh, yeah, look, I, I've used it. I, I use it. So you've got skipping with a rope, right? And then skipping as like drills and, and uh, different variations of, of different drills. And, and I've used both as, as a way of, um, 
yeah, one just developing resiliency in that lower, lower sort of calf ankle complex, um, and uh, and really really uh, looking at it from like a uh, um, almost like a training load point of view that you have to put it through a certain amount of work um, for it to adapt and be strong enough to handle certain things. And yeah, if you don't have that or you've got poor development there, yeah, it's hundred percent it's going to help you running. Yep. Awesome. And that's they're all been, I guess, examples of low amplitude and kind of higher volume that you can handle with lower amplitude kind of um, plyometrics versus, as you were, you were saying, then like um, you got then the things like drop jumps and that, which you probably wouldn't do as much as you would just. Yeah, for sure. And, and it, all, it all depends on the athlete and what, what they're um, used to. Like it's, it's a... Uh, a case of you give them enough that causes some adaptation, but if you give them too much, it'll it'll cause maladaptation. So it's a it's a it's all based on who you have in front of them, who who you have in front of you, um, and uh, and like I'd probably say there's a whole heap of fear around dip jumps and drop jumps, but the the, the it's probably in a lot of ways it's unfounded. Um, essentially. Um, you'll want to limit volume if you're coming off boxes that are higher than your actual vertical jump. Otherwise, um, you could be doing drop jumps or depth jumps off uh, boxes or heights. And if they're lower than your vertical jump, you're actually absorbing more force just from jumping on the ground and then landing um, or doing repeated jumps, jumping and landing. And then you have some sports. So I think of snowboarding or gymnastics or things like that, where athletes are landing from heights that are far higher than uh, what you might be getting them jumping off in the gym. Um, and I've actually done that in the past where I've had sort of gymnasts uh, step off two meter high boxes and, and land and then have an absorbed strategy and then a, and then a uh, um, like a real shock strategy where they're really trying to um, attack the ground and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's just a uh, function of, of who you have in front of you, what are they used to in their sport and, uh, and what's going to give them some type of adaptation. Awesome. So <clears throat> working with like a new athlete, how do you, do you do any tests around finding their entry point or do you just go based off like how they're doing in their sport? Do you use their performance as a bit of a guide as to where to start with their plyometric type training or do you have specific tests you use? Yeah, so I, I, I do. Um, it depends. Like I've got a, a battery of like jumping tests I might use and, and I might apply that in like an a la carte fashion based on who I have, what sport that I'm dealing with. Um, but I mean, your basic one, your basic one is just a counter movement jump. From there, um, I can give you a height for uh, depth jumps and uh, drop jumps almost immediately. Basically, it's just 10% higher than your, um, than your best counter movement jump height. And then you can go, okay, if I jump 40 centimetres um, and a counter movement jump, the optimal height for you to start doing depth jumps will be at 45 centimetres. It's pretty simple. Otherwise, you're better off just jumping repeatedly on the ground. Um, but you, you, yeah, the sort of counter movement jump, um, then depending on things like just basic height, um, like an easy marker for males is hands on hips from a um, force plate or a timing mat, whether you're, you're using like impulse momentum or uh, flight time calculations. If it's about 40 centimetres, that's probably a good place where you can start being a bit more advanced with them. Um, and then for to start assessing more of the fast stretch short and cycle activities, I'll use something like a repeated jump or repeated pogo. It's like a 10-5 uh, RSI uh, type test or 10-5 pogo where essentially you might jump 10 times, you take the five 
uh, best of those and average them out. Um, you can look at flight time and contact time. You would only, um, one of the sort of caveats there is, is you'd normally like all of those uh, contact times to be under 250 milliseconds. Um, so that's a sort of marker for what you're looking at, but that's another one I'd look at and just to assess sort of stretch shortening cycle function. You can do that um, two legs, one leg, same with the counter room jump, two legs, one leg. Um, and with the one legs, you just have to be aware that your contact times are going to be a bit higher. Um, so now it might be sort of uh, 300 milliseconds that, that you're looking at. Uh, and then you can also do sort of compare um, non-stretch shortening cycle activity to stretch shortening cycle activity. So a counter movement jump, sorry, a non-counter movement jump, a squat jump to a counter movement jump, and you'll get a thing called eccentric utilization ratio. Um, not only will this tell you how well an athlete uh, uses their um, stretch shortening cycle. So for instance, if a person is um, very good at using the stretch shortening cycle, their counter movement jump will be much greater than their non-counter movement jump. So a non-counter movement jump, go down the bottom, pause three seconds, take away any type of elastic recall that they can use, and then jump as high as you can, hands on hips. Uh, counter movement jump, hands on hips, go down and up as fast as you can, jump as high as possible. Then if the, um, so in that case, if the counter movement jump is, is much greater, you might say, okay, we want to work on rate of force production activities um, to, to bring up your, your uh, non-counter movement jump. And vice versa, if non-counter movement jump and counter movement jump are really close, you might say, ah, oh, I need to do more stretch shortening cycle activities because now this, this is too close to one another. Um, also for, for physios, really good mark of tendon health in the knee. So people that don't have uh, good tendon health in, in the knee and, and uh, um, low, lower extremity, you, you'll be looking at uh, eccentric utilization ratios. They're really close together because they can't use that elastic recoil. Um, and, and yeah, I've used that in, in volleyballers and basketballers as a, as a marker in single limb tests, especially for rehab um, and, uh, and as, a, as a sort of proxy for tendon health. Awesome. And you're just measuring that on a force plate or are you using video to measure height? What's the way that you normally go about it? Yeah, so you just need a height measure, whether that's done from a flight time calculation on a timing mat um, or a force plate, which would be either a flight time calculation or an impulse momentum, like a takeoff velocity. You can use a push band, um, you'd like an accelerometer to do it. You can use um, like a IMU, which is the same thing. It's like an accelerometer. Um, you can literally hang a ball above the head and get them to jump and touch touch a ball above the head. You can use video like the um, on your phone, slow motion video. Um, smart jump is a uh, app. I believe it's Smart Jump. I'm my, my jump. A, uh, a, uh, a brain fade here, but yeah, I've, I've used that in the past. Um, you can use a linear position transducer like Gymaware, um, which is probably the most accurate thing to be honest. But uh, yeah, and and it's just. It is just a, uh, a jump height marker that you're after. Um, of course, you can dig into the weeds a bit more if you do have force plates and look at things like eccentric uh, peak velocities. You can look at things like concentric force, that type of thing, and, and those give a bit more insight into what you're looking at. But a real basic uh, basic profile can be done really simply and really well just with jump height. Awesome. Do you notice that yeah, during rehab, um, that that eccentric utilization ratio is something that you that you notice calf like in line with say 
quad strength in line with like the pain decreasing um, in a quadriceps tendinopathy, something like that? Yeah, for sure, for sure, hundred percent. The the like the more pain there is, not normally the the less I'll be able to use that stretch shortening cycle. Um, and then like one of the big uh, sort of facets of of a philosophy I have around return to players is, is like you might talk to like limb symmetry index um, and like jump height's a really crude marker of things. Um, same same with strength. Like if you're just looking at strength, you're probably missing it. Like I, I much prefer to think of um, say power wattage um, if it's a if it's a strength based exercise like how many uh, watts are they producing um, in say left leg versus right leg um, and then also what is their uh, actual elastic capabilities what does the stretch shortening cycle look like in those um, in those when the one leg the sort of injured limb compared to the uh, uninjured limb um, and and I'd say it's probably not that important in terms of asymmetry, but is, is it above the standard that you think um, that you think is required for them to participate in their sport? So maybe it's uh, um, like seven times body weight for for running. Um, you know what I mean? And, and that's probably more important. Like if I had a person that say two hundred watts is is the cutoff, uh, was more like two thousand watts would be the cutoff. Um, and I had a person that was 2,200 watts and 2,700 watts, I wouldn't, in one leg compared to the other, I wouldn't be too worried. But if one uh, leg is like uh, 2,000 watts and the other one's like 1,300 watts, then I'll be really worried about the asymmetry, if that made sense. So you're only looking for like really large discrepancies on that kind uh, of test? I, I, only if it's below the marker, the marker that you think is is required for, the, for that particular activity. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, the discrepancies, it's, that would be a second order. I'd, I'd consider that first and foremost. And then if I really wanted to dive deeper and, and we had the opportunity, then I might go into, into like what is one limb compared to the other, if they were both above. But if they're both above, um, then, I, then I might not worry about it because they're, they're probably functional enough. So it's, a, it's just a philosophy around, uh, like inherently nobody is symmetrical and it's... Uh, it's just understanding, like you'll have, um, say, long jumpers, for instance. I spent uh, sort of two years uh, working with some of the best in the world. Their, their takeoff leg is much stronger than their, non, than their uh, non-takeoff leg. And But if you tried to, um, uh, if you spent all your time trying to fix up the non-takeoff leg and, and make them stronger in that, um, you probably wouldn't get many performance improvements in their actual sport. Yeah. I'm just thinking the same for tennis. Like if you've got the serving arm and you're trying to bring up their non-serving arm to like the speed of their, their other arm, you're just wasting your time. Like, Yeah, I will put a caveat on that though. I will put a caveat on that because there is, I definitely believe, um, uh, say uh, the non-dominant limb, um, there's, there's benefits for say um, serving left, right um, in terms of like uh, injury prevention, even like running around the track the opposite way, everybody always runs around the track the same way, right, at, at athletics. Um, running around the track the opposite way, uh, every now and then it's not going to be all the time. Volleyball, um, serving with your non-dominant hands, you know what I mean, throwing with your non-dominant hand, all those things. All, all, uh, one, there might be an injury offset or injury risk reduction there. And then two, um, with what we know about skill acquisition, it will probably make you the non-dominant limb, you getting better in your non-dominant limb, 
will probably help you perform and give you more information about how to perform really well when you dominate them. So it's not a, a waste of time, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's benefits to it, you know what I mean? Um, and there's different scenarios like return to sport and, and otherwise healthy or apparently healthy. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer actually in, in doing a lot of work in the, in the non-dominant limit. If I had tennis players that I was coaching, I'd be like, yeah, you should do some serving left-handed. And uh, at least in your warm-up, you know what I mean, just to uh, just to get a feel for it and, and uh, get these benefits from skill development and, and also potential injury risk reduction. That's awesome. I don't think I've, I've heard of anyone using left-handed serves or non-dominant arm serves to – to improve performance, like it's not something that we ever got brought up with. That's that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the uh, Chinese women's volleyball team used to actually do it. Um, they were gold medal winners in, in Rio, um, and they would do that in maybe like three warm ups a week. Um, practice non dominant arm spiking and non dominant arm serving that type of thing. Awesome. That's cool. And uh, going back to um, Connor's thing with the, someone getting first back into plyometrics as well, I was thinking, I, so I wrote a, um, an article for Physio Network, but I kind of argue against my own point that I wrote of like, I set out like a whole continuum of, and you kind of would go through, you know, maybe practice the force creation or force absorption, then creation and all that type of stuff. But realistically, when I'm in and coaching someone, I don't, I don't kind of force them to go through okay, you've got to show me that you can do all these kind of, you know, we're going to start off at force absorbing work and, and kind of slow plyometric works no matter what. Like I kind of just, wherever they are at, at the time, kind of whatever competency they can show me, they can jump. That's kind of where we start. What do you do? Do you take someone through like a, you know, you've got to kind of earn the right to get to a certain area or you just start them wherever they kind of at or what's your kind of philosophy around uh, starting someone on plyometrics there? Mm, I'd say that those are actually uh, pretty synonymous. Like you, you, you've got a progression or continuum in your head, like say absorption, then creation. Um, so even if it's like non-counter-movement before counter-movement, um, then uh, double contact, then continuous jumps or depth jumps, drop jumps, like off a box, those, those are all continuums. And it's just, okay, we, we have this and you're screening them when you're in this coaching process, you're screening them during that moment. Okay, what can you actually do? And if they can already do a certain, they already have this aptitude, you know they've probably ticked the boxes um, prior to that part of that continuum. And so you, you might, it might take your session to get to that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's that, that's just a, like a screening process in, in of itself, um, even if it's not a real formalized thing. But it's it's uh, day to day coaching, you know what I mean? It's it's similar to you can do a depth jump profile where you um, or drop jump profile where and I'll talk drop jumps. Depth jump, you uh, come off a box and jump for maximum height. Drop jump, you come off a box and spend as little amount of time on the ground as possible. So say a depth jump, a drop jump profile, um, you might do say 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 centimeters to see uh, what your best RSI is or um, flight time and relative to contact time. And that might be a profile that will tell you um, what height you should use with this athlete, like the optimal height. Um, but you can, uh, one, you can just use, like I said before, the defunct or um, just 10% above their best counter movement jump height, because now you know that'll be causing some adaptation. And two, you can just do that in a, in a training session. You don't actually have to do a profile. You can just go, like, okay, today, first seat, you're going up 20 centimeters. 
Next set, you're going off 40. Next set, you're going off 60. I, at the end of that, in the three sets, was it still going up? All right, next week, we're going to be doing 60, 80, 100. Like, you know what I mean? And then you just work at it from there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just uh, you're just embedding that in your own coaching. Awesome. So just slowly increasing the amount of intensity to just check, see where they're at, and then picking 10% above what you think is going to get them a performance adaptation, either next session or later that session kind of thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it might be, uh, it might not even be intensity, it might be volume as well. Um, like that's just a, just a like rule of thumb, right? It's like, okay, see where they're at, give them something that's going to advance them, but uh, um, it's going to, it's going to like give some type of adaptation for them. Awesome. Can I dig a little bit into something that you said before? Like the two, I love how you use the words like um, implied metrics. You had one that was like attacking them and then the other, I can't remember the exact word yet, but something like more like they were kind of meeting it and it was a little bit of a softer, like a something that you would think of as more like a stiff plyometric, a real quick springy kind of plyometric, that attacking versus that softer one. Um, and I was thinking like implications for that and say some of our lower limb common pathologies like, you know, tendinopathies or what type of um, those type of injuries, like what are the implications around how you can use those, even just those easy verbal cues to someone to actually kind of work around an injury, but still be able to give them like some sort of a training. Mm -hmm. For sure. So um, yeah, I, I, I generally coach uh, three different types of jumps, I'll call them. Um, you've got uh, uh, an absorb where you might have a lot of knee flexion extension to, to uh, soften the fall or, or, or um, um, like catch yourself on the ground. Then it might be a feel type jump, which is like a little bit fast when you feel the ground, but you're still trying to get off it pretty fast. And then you've got shock at the other end of the continuum, which is where you're going down, you're attacking the ground, there's very minimal knee um, flexion extension. It's, it's, it's mostly, uh, mostly born about in, in the ankle. Um, and, and that's like a continuum, right? Uh, shock, feel, absorb. Um, and so I'm going to bring up another point later because it's made me think of it as where people actually generate their force from, whether it's hips or knees, um, which, which is another real, real interesting uh, um, conversation. But... Um, yeah, so these these jumping strategies you might use with them based on what you're seeing. And when, if people do have injuries, obviously you would start with the absorb. And when they're feeling comfortable, then you might go up a step and go, okay, we want, we want you to start attacking the ground a bit more. Uh, we still want you to be feeling the ground, but attacking the ground a bit more. And then when they're confident in that, and then maybe there's uh, no pain or pain's below two out of 10, I don't know, um, depending on your philosophy and how you want to treat the, treat the patient. Um, you're like, okay, we're going, we're going into a shock type jump where you're going to be attacking the uh, ground. There's very minimal um, attempts to uh, minimize the forces you're going to be absorbing. You're, you're going to really be uh, aiming for like stiff leg landing where you're attacking the ground. Um, and that would be our shock uh, type jump. So that would be used again on a continuum based on how people are presenting to you and, and how well they, uh, they can handle the type of jumping activities you, you've given them. Um, in terms of the range of motion, that's a really uh, like that's another movement screen. Um, you have people that flex a lot at both hip and knee. You have people that flex a lot at knee and not hip. You have people that flex a lot at hip and not knee. And you've got people that uh, don't flex much um, at all in their jumping patterns. Um, and so that's another thing to definitely be aware of is the people 
where they they might need to be coached um, in a different jumping strategy based on where they where the range of motion is occurring mostly in their jumping style and jumping pattern. So, for instance, the person that isn't uh, isn't using much knee flexion extension in their jumping um, and mainly hip, uh, you, you might investigate why is that the case? Is it because they they can't load uh, their patella? tendons, their quads, you know what I mean? They don't have that necessary strength. Um, uh, is it like uh, muscle uh, architecture and like length of gastroc and, and all other, a few other things? Um, what, what, is, what is the reasoning there? You might say, okay, well, we actually need to, as a, as a um, strategy here, you need to have a little bit more knee flexion extension. I mean, we're also gonna give you, like do our best to give you some sort of distal quad uh, muscle bulk improvements in that to help you out um, with, with the style of jumping. Um, and then on the other end, you might, you might say, well, if, if mainly that you're predominantly a, a hip dominant jumper, we're gonna reinforce that, that pattern by making sure your like, glutes are really strong, your rectus are really strong, you know what I mean? Your, your upper hamstrings are really strong and, and really go after it that way. Um, so yeah, you've got these like strategies, jump strategies, and then you've also got the, the joints and how they go through their range of motion when they're actually, uh, when people are naturally jumping. And you'll, you'll pick up, the more you watch people jumping, uh, they uh, go through different ranges of motion and different joints to get what they want, their jumping strategy. There's lots of different jumping strategies out there, but essentially it involves a certain amount of flexion, extension at either knee or hip and ankle um, to, get, uh, to get where they want to go. So quite often with technique, what we see is there's like an acceptable range of technique. Say you've looked at someone's hip and knee flexion in a jump. Do you have like any cutoff points for saying, okay, like performance-wise, we definitely need to change this to like get you to be jumping better? Or is it just one of those things where it's like, that's probably how you've always jumped. We'll just keep training that pattern. Are there any kind of things that you see as like a little red flag to say, okay, we need to, we need to change that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like um, you like RSI, reactive strength index, which is your flight time divided by your contact time, or your uh, jump height divided by your contact time, or con uh, reactive strength index modified, which is just contraction time instead of contact time. Um, like th they can be improved dramatically in like twenty seconds of coaching. Um, like go down and up faster to to the athlete, um, and and you're, and you're jumping. Um, don't go down as deep. Um, like for instance, if there was, and this, this is a uh, prime example, um, and I'm thinking of an actual uh, uh, university student that we did a uh, did a jumping workshop at Bond University, just just uh, like a practical class for some of their undergrads, and he had this uh, kid who was a weightlifter, um, very very heavily uh, um, uh, like good good lower body leg bolt that type of thing. Um, went through a massive range of motion with his uh, counter movement jump, like really deep. Took a long time to generate force, um, and and jumped reasonably high. As soon as we went and constrained the actual, um, we, we then moved into um, uh, drop jumps. As soon as we constrained the um, uh, contact time, two hundred fifty milliseconds, his jump height just went out the, out the window. He just didn't have experience. Um, producing force in a limited time frame. And so it's, it's as soon as you see something like that, a massive range of motion, slow down, slow up, 
um, where they really must and things, you'd be like, yeah, we can we can be doing this better. Again, it might be a marker, a real um, rudimentary marker of tendon health as well. People that can't go real down down and up really fast, but you'd be coaching them. You go, hey, we need to we need to increase your contraction speed and, and get you uh, moving down and up faster. Um, getting more out of uh, more out of these tendons rather than trying to muscle everything. Well, the, the cool thing I was thinking there, if you look at the whole like envelope of function kind of model, the stress recovery kind of adaptation model there, you're thinking like if he was then to go and do, if he was a weekend warrior, like a really good weightlifter, but a weekend warrior who went to play some sort of sport, which involved a lot more short ground contact times and whatnot, but he's prepared for like, you know, being more, being able to muscle, being able to kind of rely on his strength to get it. Well, then his tendons probably don't have as big of capacity as like his training age and training history would possibly suggest. Oh, he would have trouble with any running sport. He's like, you know what I mean? Any, any sport, um, field and court sport that involved locomotion um, above, a, above a jog, you know what I mean? That he, he would have trouble with that if he had to do a lot of it. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's just you, if you need to be able to produce force in a certain time frame, if you can't do that, um, you, you need to learn how to basically. That that's the uh, that's the next step in the in the training uh, toolbox. Awesome. Just being mindful of time here. Um, you probably have a couple more questions and then wrap up. Um, are there any? Do you have any difference like different considerations for upper limb plyometric training versus lower limb plyometric training? Do you change anything about how you would uh, progress an athlete or, or choose volumes and, and things like that um, that are kind of generalizable to upper limb and lower limb? Um, I would say it's pretty similar in, in terms of it's, it's assessing what an athlete can do and then, um, and then giving an intervention based on that, um, like seeing where they're at, whether it's like assessing where they're on this continuum of um, – you know what I mean? Non-counter movement, counter movement, double contact. Like you can use all those types of things with upper body. For instance, non-counter movement would just be in a, in a push-up um, or, or an upper body push. Might be you hold a, um, a medicine ball on your chest for three seconds, then you throw it. You know what I mean? That would be the equivalent of non-counter movement jump. Um, counter movement jump, hold a medicine ball with straight arms, bring it down to your chest and throw it really fast. Uh, double contact do two pumps of the medicine ball before throwing it. Same thing with uh, um, doing a push-up. You could do a little pop before going down and doing it. A repeated, a bang, bang, bang. That'll be more intense. So it's the same concepts and same progressions um, that you do as a coach in the lower body and the upper body. Um, and then, like, obviously, you're dealing with smaller muscle groups, so uh, you need to be mindful of the load, like... Uh, my grandma could say our upper body is not as big as our lower body. Um, so you need to be mindful of that. And then I'd say the other thing, um, and it's just like training the hamstrings for sprinting. Um, and I suppose it's not, I do do um, like activity stretch shortening cycle activities for the hamstrings below 250 milliseconds, which wouldn't, uh, you could term pyrometrics, but um, wouldn't be jumping activities. Um, but you can do the same thing for the accelerators of the shoulder as well if, if you're doing an upper body push. Um, same thing with the pulls, like upper body pulling. Um, your like a, a pull-up might turn like a non-counter move for upper body. Like if, you, if you're strong enough, um, it might be from a dead hang, pulling up as fast as possible if you really want to maximise that. 
then it might be down and up as up as fast as possible. Then you might be doing something like a, a kipping style pull up to maximize stretch shortening cycle activity in the uh, shoulder flexors and uh, and yeah, it's 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 that same continuum, um, and you can just apply it across the uh, across the exercises um, based on what you want to get out of them. You got anything to add there, Steve? No, mate, all good. Love it. Awesome. So probably one of the last questions, and then we'll look to wrap up. Um, what are the main challenges that you found with prescribing more explosive or plyometric type activities? Have you run into anything that crops up all the time or um, like could it be perception with athletes or perception with uh, like, I don't know, parents of kids and things like that about uh, exercises they should and shouldn't be doing? Yeah, what have you, uh, what have you experienced? Yeah, yeah. I actually haven't, um, I haven't had much to do with parents of kids, although I'm working in a high school, we've got a strength and conditioning coach there, does a really good job. I haven't had much to do with parents of kids. And generally, though, um, what I've found is the parents of kids are more worried about them actually lifting weights than jumping around and, like, doing those type of activities. I have had situations with, like, a, um, a footballer I did, like, a Achilles return to play with, and so we're doing a lot of jumping and, and rehabilitation. After I finished them, um, I was sending him some, some stuff that he could do, and uh, he probably ended up doing too much. I, I took the reins off too much and, and gave him a – Gave him a bit too many, uh, too much inspiration. So all of a sudden he was doing like downhill uh, bounds and um, all these different type of jumping activities. And his knee flared up and uh, things like that. So yeah, you've just got to be mindful of it. It's like anything, right? It's an inverted U. Um, if you do too little or too much, you're going to get injured or not perform well. Like that's a that's a universal truth basically around what we do. Like if you load the tendon too much, it's uh, it's not going to be good. If you don't load the tendon at all, it's not going to be good um, for, for for injury prevention and and for uh, actual performance. So it's just finding that that uh, Goldilocks warmth of, of the porridge you want to be eating. Perfect, mate. That's awesome. And um, could I have one last one, which on this same tact of just like, have you used other? I think I, I mentioned to you earlier, maybe things like sand or hills or any of that to kind of change that um, just like you did with your cues of kind of soft or quick attack, have you used surfaces or anything like that to kind of change the load in through the, the tendons or whatever that they're getting there? Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, like there's even um, evidence that, uh, and it makes a lot of sense, so if, if you're in a sport that requires like rate of force development, like say starting from blocks in a sport, you jumping off a um, quasi-closed surface like sand, where it's essentially it's closed, um, but there's some movement in it, you'll you'll improve that rate of force development rather versus you jumping off um, something like uh, uh, concrete. You know what I mean? So. There's definitely uses for that and definitely uses when, say, an athlete's coming back. Um, they might do work in the, uh, like, work in the long jump pit. Like I'm thinking, uh, like, an actual athletics athlete. They might do, like, low-amplitude jumps on grass first and low-amplitude jumps in the long jump pit just to build up the tolerance in the uh, lower lower extremity, like your calf and ankle, um, to tolerate some of the more advanced sort of sprinting and, and jumping things you might do. Um, but yeah, hills for sure. Hills will obviously um, 
uh, they'll slow down contact times unless you're running down them. And I've used running downhills as, as much as running uphills. You can even use running downhills for like increased eccentric loading. Um, can be a strategy for like marathon runners that uh, get really sore towards the back end, like 35K into the marathon. You can run down steep hills, um, build it up obviously appropriately, but uh, that'll start preparing the joints and, and, uh, and the lower limb for that type of eccentric loading that they'll go through. Um, it's just another form of strength training. So yeah, I, I man, all those types of things, hills, sand, um, trampoline as well. Trampoline's awesome um, for increasing uh, like rate of contraction. Um, obviously used it a lot myself. I had a like rupture my Achilles at the back end of 2020 and uh, the trampoline's been awesome for me. Like single leg trampoline work's been awesome for me. Um, improving like, uh, it's actually surprising how much um, although it was an Achilles injury, how much the my left leg, in terms of like overall triple extension in that left leg, uh, especially knee extension, uh, went downhill. And so I've used the trampoline a lot to, to bring back that high velocity component of it. Awesome. I think I saw some backflips as part of that rehab as well. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was probably pretty, uh, pretty silly. But um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was fun. It's fun. No, you know, when you get started, you, you, you just, it's just fun, right? And so you, uh, you don't put on the brakes. Maybe that's the problem. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I think we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for coming on, mate. That was awesome chat. Um, yeah, so where can people find you? Where can, um, where can we see your work? And, uh, yeah, can people get in touch with you, things like that? Yeah, look, I guess, I guess the best way is just like Instagram or Twitter. Um, like at Joseph Coin, so um, yeah, pretty simple. J O C P H C O Y N E is uh, is the handle, right? People are interested in my research. It's all on training load. I've done some stuff on upper body. Uh, my master's was on the effects of upper body strength on uh, sprint paddling and surfboards, uh, like surfboard paddling. So stuff on that. Um, but the master's was all on training load um, across different sports. And so Research Gate is another place if, if people are interested, they can jump on there and, and check it out. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Um, well, that wraps up another episode of the RPE podcast and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, mate. See you later. Thank you for grinding out another RPE 10 with us on the RPE podcast. Thanks again to Joseph for coming on. You can find links on where to find Joseph and his work in the description, as well as links to all of the resources mentioned in today's show. Thanks again and see you next time.